Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Welcome again to Four Corners Church. I'm really glad you're here for week two of Fresh, where we're, as Melissa said, unpacking some stories that maybe you've heard. For some of you, it may be a little bit new. We're trying to look at them through a fresh lens and say, what would God speak to our church through these stories? Well, over the last couple of weeks, my family and I have been in Florida on vacation, and we're so grateful to serve a church that allows us to take time off. Uh, you'd be surprised how many pastors don't get to do that, and uh, believes that me and my wife and our kids having a healthy dynamic in our home is important and having time off to do that. So thank you to all of you who have stepped up and helped make that happen. It's a big deal. We're going to turn in our Bibles today to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. And while you're turning there, I want to echo what Melissa said to you. I was so proud of uh, Pastor Will and the team that stepped up uh, last week. I thought he did a phenomenal job. Um, yeah, that, that's all right. That's good. You know, my first time speaking, there were 12 people in the audience, and uh, five of them were my family members. And so to stand on this stage to give your first kind of public to adults uh, message can be a bit intimidating. And I, as Melissa said, I thought he slayed it and just did a great job. We're going to talk about Samson today. Um, Samson's story is pretty amazing. It's one of my favorites from my childhood because it was all about Samson, the strong man. Samson the strong man. And Samson, I don't know what you know about him, but uh, his story is in the Bible in the book of Judges. In fact, it's, he's the last of the judges in that book. Let me give you a little background to that story because it will help you to understand the point of the story for us today. Uh, the book of Judges comes at a time before Israel has been unified together under a king. And so in the little cities that make up that what will become a kingdom... Uh, there would be, from time to time, a person of prominence would rise up to leadership. He was called, or she was called, a judge. And they sat in the seat of declaring a certain amount of law. They brought peace and calm to a time when things were turbulent. And in the story of Judges, you see the culmination of some 12 to 13 different judges that are mentioned in this book. But there's a cycle I want to take you through that happens in the book of Judges, and you can follow along with me in your sermon notes. They look like this. There's a cycle that happens with each one of these judges that's important for our conversation today. <clears throat> the cycle that happens is, is that um, God's people do pretty well for a while. Like They're committed to God. They follow God. They want to be connected to God. And then they fall away. Things of God aren't as important to them. The stuff of life takes their attention. The laws that God has instructed them to follow don't get followed. They fall away. And because God loves them, he sends them warnings and reminders to come back to him. Well, this cycle of falling away and coming back to God happens multiple times in the book of Judges. And in each one of those seasons when Israel... God's people falls away from God. God sends them a judge to bring to their mind the importance of walking with the Lord. And that's what I hope this story actually does for you today. I hope it brings to your mind, maybe for the first time, perhaps for a lot of us as a reminder, it brings to your mind the importance of following God. These judges in the book of Judges, these leaders of these relatively small areas that rise up, they serve in some capacity as a savior for that area. They're going through a rough time, and God raises up a person, and he delivers them from their difficult situation. There are 
They're pictures, if you will. They're kind of a metaphor of what will ultimately be the ultimate judge and savior that will come to the world, and his name is Jesus. And that's the primary name around here that we talk about. So when we talk about Samson, what you're going to get is you're going to get a shadow of Jesus. In fact, when you read the Old Testament stories and you start seeing in them patterns and shadows of what's to come in Jesus, you know you're actually reading the Old Testament stories correctly. The Old Testament, the Old Testament stories, they point to a greater reality that the world at that time had not the ability to understand. So they got shadows, they got hints, they got foreshadowing of the Jesus that was to come. And in the story of Samson, over and over and over again, you're going to see that connection. Now the situation is Samson is the last in a series of judges. And right there in Judges chapter 13, in your Bibles, on the sermon notes, on the screen, on your phone, whatever, I want to kind of pick up a story and then walk you through this cycle a little bit more directly. All right, so Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites, that's God's people, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, in the, in the first verse, we get an interesting insight into how the story of Samson is for us a foreshadowing of Jesus. As I mentioned, there was a cycle of judges, and if you look in your sermon notes or on the screen, you can follow along. In fact, in Judges chapter 3, you see it very well. In about Judges chapter 7, you see the same cycle. You see the same cycle in about Judges chapter 11, repeated almost every time a judge is mentioned. If you start at the top of the 12 o'clock position, you can see that the people turn away from God. That happened in Judges chapter 3, and it's happening here in Judges chapter 13. The people of God did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They turn away. So God judges them by delivering the people, the group of them, into their hands of their enemies. God delivers them into the hand of their enemies. And uh, it's a bad time. Things are going really, really rough for them. And safety is on the line. They're not sure if they're going to be able to eat. Their, their outlook on life is really, really dark. And so the people began to call back out to God. And they say, God, we don't like the situation we're in. Would you help us? Would you help us? And when they call out to God, God hears them. And he sends them a judge to rescue the people. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Gideon. He was one of these judges. There's a great story about a judge named Deborah who has an incredible story of what God does uh, through her in the people's lives. And then because the people return back to God, there's a period of peace at about the, the 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock position there in your thing. And then after a while, the peace gives them a sense of comfort, and they begin to turn back away from God. Now, this cycle is repeated five, six, seven times in the book of Judges. And it's interesting when we come to the last judge now, the judge called Samson, who, remember, is a foreshadowing of Jesus for us. Something interesting happens. The cycle is there again, but there's a notable absent piece of the cycle. Just so we get it, let me give you a handful of words. These are the first several blanks under the circle there, all right? So they follow God. We're calling that fellowship. They have connection to God. They're they're walking with him. They're in unity with him. He's the priority of their life. And then there's idolatry. This is the Old Testament word where people raise up false gods and false values, and they follow them, and they direct their lives. They orient their lives towards these values, towards these idols, and their hearts are drawn away. And when that happens, God allows those gods, those false truths to enslave his people. Which sounds very harsh. 
It sounds very harsh. Why would a loving God allow people to go through rough times like that until you understand the bigger picture of what God's trying to do? He's trying to teach them that they should have no other gods but him and that because he's a loving father, when they follow him with their lives, their lives will be better for them. And so he sends them these warnings in the political world that reminds them of the spiritual reality. And then there's repentance. They suffer and they repent and they cry out to God. And then there's deliverance. This week, if you go through and read the 16 or so chapters that are in the book of Judges, you're going to see this cycle repeated over and over again. In fact, it's so obvious that by the time you get to about chapter 13, you're like, I get it. I get it. People get lazy with God. It's not important. After a while, if life's going good, God doesn't seem to be that relevant. But the moment life gets hard, we call on him, and like a faithful God, he shows up. And by the time you get to chapter 13, it's very obvious what's going on. And by the time you get to chapter 13, if you're a careful reader, you'll begin to see not just the story of the judges, you'll begin to perhaps see your own story. You'll begin to see perhaps that it's possible that not only the people in the Old Testament, but it's possible that people here in 2017, maybe even in southwest Ohio, are the kind of people that if life's going along pretty good, we have a tendency to forget just how important it is to make God the priority of your life. I know for me that I'm probably alone in this. If things are going well, God's still important to me, but it's not as obvious to me how important he's supposed to be. That's just the way I'm wired. But man, when things are going rough, he's my go-to. He's my safety net. And there's a certain amount of okayness in that. It's not all bad. But the book of Judges is trying to get us to long for a Savior who comes and brings deliverance to our life that isn't fickle, that doesn't last temporarily. Instead, it has staying power. The book of Judges gets Israel ready for a king whose name will be ultimately David, and he'll provide a sense of stability and, and, and confidence in the culture and confidence in their life. But even in David, we get an imperfect king, and Jesus becomes the perfect representation of that. So here we are now in Judges chapter 13, and we discover that the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They turn to other gods, so God delivers them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now these Philistines are an interesting group of people. Uh, sometimes when uh, you're around uh, a group of pastors and somebody's being an idiot or whatever, you say, you know, quit acting like a Philistine. And what you mean by that is some kind of uncouth, you know, un unput-together un kind, of, kind of person. But that, that's far from the reality historically. These Philistines were very, very advanced people. And while Israel was still kind of walking around in the desert with their sheep, the Philistines were building two-story buildings. They were putting bridges over water. They were working with metal while Israel was still playing with sticks. They built their civilization on weaponry and on battle. They were ferocious. You did not want to go up against the Philistines at this period in history. They were at the top of their game. And their whole civilization was built on piracy and conquest. They'd come in and take your stuff, and there was very little you could do about it. And they were known for their epic parties. They came up with a, a week-long drunken 
party called a mistah. Mistah lasted seven days. It's kind of like what happens at The Ohio State University at the beginning of like maybe frat week or something like that. Seven days of debauchery. They brought pork into the land of Israel for the first time. They were really into beer. Again, they were like a bunch of college guys, really. That's what they were like. Buccaneering and beer and bacon and barbarism. I, that was the Philistines and, and, and a lot of your freshman years. That's what they were like. And they were really rough to be around the Philistines. But God had delivered his people into their hands. I want to tell you why he did it. He did it because he loves his people. And he's willing to let his people go through rough times. He's willing to allow it so that they will remember what's most important. So in Judges chapter 13, verse 2 through 5, in your message notes, something happens here that kind of breaks the cycle we've been talking about just slightly. And it points to how important this story is for the people of Israel, but also for you today. This is not just a story in your Old Testament Bible for you to think about and reflect on. God's actually using this story to talk to us. In the stories that we've been talking about of the judges up to this point, things are going well. They kind of fall away. God delivers them into maybe the hands of the Philistines or others. And then they don't like life, so they cry out to God. But in Judges chapter 13, the cycle's slightly broken. Everything's going exactly like the cycle. Life has gotten calm and easy. People forget how important God is. Life gets rough. But in Judges chapter 13, the people don't call out for God. In fact, God initiates bringing a deliverer before they ever call out to him. And this is an interesting turn in the story of the book of Judges. Because up to this point, it's always been people came to their own self-awareness that they needed God. They need to remember how important God was. But in this particular story, God is going to initiate the saving process on his own without them calling out to him. In fact, look at it again in Judges chapter 1. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And then in verse 2, a certain man of Zarah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. Then the Bible says, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He'll take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now we're going to unpack those verses for just a moment and talk about how they point ultimately to a Savior who brings a deliverance that is permanent and that is not fickle. But in the middle of this, there's a lot of things for us to look at. The Philistines represent the enemies of God at their strongest, numerically, culturally, militarily. And then in opposition to that, you have a very weak, unnamed woman who in her culture has experienced incredible amounts of shame. In Israel at this time, children were proof that God was with you. Here's why. There was no 
There was no safety net in society. There were no 401k accounts. There was no social security. If you didn't have children, when you got old, you were on your own. And so when a family was blessed with multiple kids, people looked at them and said, God's blessed you. And when a woman couldn't have a child, it was incredibly difficult for her socially in terms of the stigma that was put upon her. So here you have the Philistines, strong and mighty, and you have a weak and barren woman. And God sends an angel of the Lord or a messenger from God to say, God is going to give you a child. God's going to use this child, and that child's going to bring deliverance. He's going to judge Israel. He's going to bring deliverance to Israel. But there are some provisos, some quid pro quos you've got to pay attention to. This thing called a Nazarite vow. It was a very special time of intense engagement. And people in the land of Israel at this time would do it for a while. They'd be going about life, and they would go through a particularly rough season perhaps, and they would declare that they were going to go through a season of Nazarite cleansing. And so an adult man usually would go to a, a priest and declare his intentions to take the Nazarite vow, and he wouldn't touch any alcohol, in fact, anything from the vine. Which meant he drank water. And um, the water there was not always great, but that's what you did. It meant that he wouldn't touch anything unclean, and that included a whole host of foods that were unable to be eaten, so his diet was incredibly restricted. And an adult man would go to the priest, make these commitments, and then the priest would often shave that person's head. And as the hair would grow back at the beginning of the Nazarite vow, over the course of the Nazarite vow, as the hair would grow back, that person would be reminded of, how, of their growth and their strength in the Lord. It was a slow process. About the time their hair would begin to, you know, be visible again, they might be coming to the end of their Nazarite vow. It was a temporary season, but not for Samson. In fact, he was going to be so special. God had such plans for him that he was going to, some, from the time before he was born, his parents would participate in his Nazarite cleansing. Even the mom would not be allowed to drink anything from the vine. No wine, no grape juice, uh, no Welch's, you know. All, nothing, nothing at all. Now, this is the complete opposition to the Philistines. And then when the child would be born... He was to not, you know, have his head cut. So Samson had very, very long hair. And this Nazarite vow became a symbol, in fact, became the, the symbol of his strength before God. And yet when you read his life, you're going to discover that all the things that were meant to be important to him get cast aside. Samson's one of those heroes in the Bible that you're not supposed to emulate. It's one of the reasons why I love God's word. When it gives us our heroes, it doesn't give us a clean, anesthetized version of history. It gives us the raw facts. All the heroes, save one, in the Bible were flawed human beings. All the deliverers were imperfect deliverers except for one. Everybody that came and did great things in the name of God had a backstory. They often had a current story. And God saw to it that these stories would be placed in our Bible to teach us about God and about us. And when we read the story of Samson, we get not just a little glimpse into Israel's history, although we do, we get a foreshadowing of who Jesus is and how he's the ultimate deliverer, but we get a picture of ourselves as well. And when you look at this woman, there are a couple of things that become very, very clear. We're told the dad, we're told where the dad is from, 
We're told the dad's name, but we're not told all the woman's name. But we're told she's going to be given a special blessing in the pregnancy that she's about to have. And this kind of echoes forward several hundred years to a time when another woman is going to receive a similar message. That she's going to give birth to a Savior who's going to save the world. This woman, like the woman in our story, is of low estate. She's in a shame-filled position, both of them. And both of them are told that God's going to do something inside of them that's going to ultimately produce incredible things outside of them. It's pretty remarkable, the parallels between the story of Samson and ultimately the story of Jesus. At the bottom of your sermon notes, here's a statement for us to kind of rally around. It's interesting that when you look at this story that the people haven't called out to God, God initiates. So our statement goes like this, that God saves people often who are not crying out for help. This is a sign of his grace in action. It reminds me of a few statements that maybe you haven't thought about in a while. That God doesn't love the lovely. He makes lovely those he loves. God doesn't save the strong. He makes strong those he saves. And God doesn't choose righteous people, but he makes the people he chooses righteous. It's the way God works. Now, up till this point in the story, Israel's been calling out to God. But at this point, God initiates and says, I'm going to send you a Savior. Why does he do it? Simply because he loves them. Simply because they are his people. This is an example of what God began to do in the story of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look at your sermon notes. These are the words that Israel received from God early in the journey with the Lord. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were numerous, more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of the people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, therefore, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Israel was constantly reminded that God loved them simply because he loved them. It wasn't anything they had to offer. In fact, in this part of the story, they don't even call out to God. He just is the God of love and he can't help it. He just loves people. So when you read the story of Samson, you're reminded of a couple very important themes that speak to every follower of Jesus today. That God initiated his extension of relationship to us before we even began to pursue him. The Bible writers say it a lot of different ways. One writer says it this way, that while we were still sinning, it was in that moment that Christ died for us. Long before it was even important to us. Long before you were born. Over and over again in the pages of the Bible, you see God reaching out to save. In the story of Samson, we're reminded that God sends us times of deliverance. That God sends us blessing. That God sends us salvation. But it all ultimately comes from him. And there was nothing we could do to earn it. It wasn't in our asking. 
It wasn't in our offering. It wasn't in our serving. It was simply because of his grace. And this is good news to every single person in the room today. And this might be the word that you needed to hear. Since it is God who pursues us, he's not going to discard us when we stumble. Since it's God who pursues us, he's not going to discard us when we stumble. I'm reminded of the many times that I walked away from how important God is to me. I'm reminded of the seasons in my life where if you looked at me as a, maybe a forensic you know, investigator, he'd have a hard time proving that God was that important to me. When I think about those seasons in my life, I'm reminded immediately of a saving God who reaches out past all of that. When you read the story of a guy like Samson in the Bible, a guy who we're not supposed to emulate, a guy whose life is really an embarrassment in many ways, and yet God still used that person mightily, it's hope to every single person in this room. Every person who felt like maybe they don't measure up spiritually. There are Christians, followers of Jesus better. And even if they started now, they're behind the eight ball. Or people who have, you know, a, a, a checkered past, perhaps. When I think about the grace of God that has been extended to me, I'm also thinking about the grace of God that gets extended through us. God's going to use this very imperfect judge. And God's going to use this very, very imperfect human being whose story is told in the Bible to teach us. He's going to use him to remind us that not only can he save us and ultimately make us right with him, but he can still do great things in our life and through our lives. That's the power of the grace of God at work. It's the story of Samson told over and over and over again in your life and in my life. When you go through times of forgetting that God is very important and he's the number one thing in our life and everything in our lives should be oriented around his priorities. And since it's he that does the pursuing and he that does the initiating, it gives us great comfort knowing that when we mess up, it doesn't mean we're out. So from time to time, when my kids were little, I would go to them and I would say, why does dad love you? And after a few cycles of this, they'd roll their eyes because they knew what was coming. And I would say, does dad love you because you're smart? And they would say, no. And as they got older, they got a little cocky. They would say, but we are very smart. <laughs> does dad love you because you're beautiful? And they would say, no. And of course, somebody would say, but I'm very handsome. I'm very handsome. And they are. They're incredibly smart and beautiful and awesome kids. And I love them, right? But they knew where this story was going. Does dad love you because you've done great things? No. And why does dad love you? Because he loves us. And they start a cyclical, illogical argument. You know, just, it's illogical. It's very, it, it doesn't follow. But that's exactly the way God is. He loves us simply because he loves us. And it's very important to understand the salvation that he's about to bring Israel, the salvation he brought through every human being, through the person of Jesus, and the salvation he offers you today. The beginning point that you need to understand is, is that it is God's grace at work. It's nothing about you. You didn't do any of it. The Bible tells us that it can't be about you because if it was about us, we would boast. In Ephesians chapter 2, not by any works lest we boast. This is all about God. Now, 
Manoah's wife gets to hear this story and Manoah's not around, that she's going to have a child. So in Judges chapter 13, verse 8, there on your sermon notes, here's what our Bible tells us. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. So they get this word. Manoah's not around to kind of hear it all. And he thinks maybe his wife's been hanging out with the Philistines, you know, a little, little bit of the beer stuff going on over there. Maybe she's a little, you know, tipsy. Really, this is going to happen. We haven't even asked for it. And God's going to send us. And we're from the tribe of Dan. We're not even that important. We're on the, the very far boundary land of our own country. And God's going to use us to do something. And if he does, what do we even do with that? And so Manoah starts going through an entire series of questions. He wants to know all the details. But something we have to keep in mind, when God wants to bring us salvation, when God wants to move to the front of our lives, when he's about to break through and do something in our lives, often what he says to us is, is I have a plan and purpose, and I want you to trust me. I want you to start walking towards me, even when you don't know all the details. So Manoah says, all right, you're going to give us a kid. Where's the manual on how to raise him? I prayed a very similar prayer. God, you gave me these kids. You know? What, what did you want me to do? Seriously, I'm not equipped for this. Show me the book, the plan of what to do now. One particular interesting season in our family was when my son John Ryan was being born. We're in the hospital, literally. Jill is receiving an epidural because she's a weak woman and couldn't handle it naturally. <laughs> she's not here. She's not here. It's all good. She's getting an epidural, and we get a phone call from the, ch- the person who's watching our children at home, the other children. John is our last one. And on the other end of the line, there's a frantic voice. Max has gotten into the medicine cabinet. Yeah, so he climbed up on the counter. Opened the medicine cabinet, and I had not screwed the lid tightly on the Tylenol bottle. And so the babysitter walks in. He's sitting on the kitchen counter, and there are Tylenol pills all over and white stuff all over his face. And while Jill's getting the epidural, she can hear me talking to the babysitter. And then there's the anesthetist doing the work, and he's like, Tylenol's bad. Get that kid here. So while John Ryan is being born, Max So did not want him to be born that I'm spending the entire day in the ER with my other child. And we're, I'm going upstairs, downstairs the whole time. Now, bottom line is, Max had just barely bitten into it. He was fine, we think. We've wondered if that wasn't the cause of many problems to follow. <laughs> but they don't give you a manual for this stuff. And so Manoah says, all right, I hear you, God. I want it, but what do I do? How do I do this? So Manoah wants details, but God says to him instead, this is who I am. This is a little lesson, a spiritual lesson for all of us. That often when we're called to do things, we want the details of what it's supposed to look like. We want to get rid of all the questions. And often what God does is he says, I'm going to give you a bigger picture of me. I'm not going to answer your questions about details. But by the time we get done, you're going to see me more clearly. You're going to know who I am better. In fact, it's the process of trusting me with the details. Just start walking now and keep your eyes on me. We want explanation, but God gives us a revelation. We want explanations, but God gives us revelations. And the revelation is always a bigger picture of him. Now, I don't know what you brought in with you today. 
I don't know where it is you're calling out and asking God to help. My hunch is in a room this size, the possibilities are, you know, pretty broad. It's a physical thing. It's a financial thing. It's a relational thing. It's an emotional thing. It's, it's a big thing. And we want to trust God, but we're wondering often about the details. That's natural. That's what Manoah's doing. That's what I've done. But what I've learned over walking with Jesus for a number of years now is that instead of answering my questions about all the details, sometimes God just says to me, look more clearly at me. Keep your eyes on me. Just keep walking in the direction I called you to go. And at the end of that process, I get a clearer picture of just how complete his salvation is. But it requires a certain amount of stretching of my faith. And I read the story of Samson. This is not a story so much of a man who was just physically strong and did great things. It's a story of a man who had some physical strength because God empowered him. But in almost every other category of life, he is an infant. He's undeveloped. He's immature. He's impulsive. He forgets what's important. He's easily distracted. And yet God still uses him. So in, in, in chapter 13, verse 17 through 18, we're getting the story again of how Samson's coming into the world. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord. And he says to him, here's an interesting turn in this story. What is your name? So that we may honor you when your word comes true. Then this messenger of God says, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Now the translators, when they translated from the original languages into the English Bibles we have, they, they struggle at this phrase. Now, some versions of your English Bibles, depending on which ones you have, the NIV here says it's beyond understanding. Some versions will say, like the English Standard Version, it's too wonderful for you. Or it's too marvelous. Or it's unknowable. My name. And this is a quick little picture to all of us reading this story that God, even the very names of God and the things that are deeply connected to God sometimes are beyond our full grasp. And it begs the question, what happens to your faith when you go through those seasons where you want to be delivered? What is God going to try to do in the process of delivering you? Does he simply want to alleviate the things that have called you to remember how important he is? Or does he want to do something else? And I want to suggest to you today that if you're in a position where you're calling out to God, that what he wants to do is help you, of course. But God is so much more than a cosmic helper. What he wants to do is totally encapsulate, uh, captivate your imagination. He wants to grab hold of your thoughts. He wants to give you a picture of him that will literally blow your mind. It's too wonderful. It's beyond understanding. It's huge. He wants to be so big in your life that everything else gets its right place somewhere well below him. Which means the challenges we're going through, the things that we need delivered from, even if we're overwhelmed by their might, like the Israelites were overwhelmed by the Philistines, the answer is always to be found in a bigger picture of God, a grander picture of who he is and his nature and his, and his activity in our lives and in this world. Now, this is how Samson's story begins. 
And next week I'll give a part two to Samson. We'll get into some of the details of his life. And I want to give you an overview real quick so you can see where we're going. And you can see just how complete is the salvation of our Lord. Samson had some big, big failures in his life. There were four of them. I'm going to give them to you. His first big failure in life was compromise. Over the course of his life, he's going to break all three provisions of his Nazarite vow. All three provisions. His hair is going to get cut. He loves the wine. He loves it. It's, it's a big problem. And he's always going to unclean things, ceremonially unclean. One particular episode, he kills a lion with his bare hands, like rips it apart. In fact, when you read the text, it actually says he rips it apart like a man rips apart a lamb, as if that happened all the time. I, <laughs> evidently, that metaphor meant something very important in the Old Testament. It's lost on me today, but he rips apart a lion like you could rip apart a lamb, all right? And then a little bit later on, he goes back to the place where the lion is, and a bunch of bees have gathered, and they've built a, a, a nest, a, you know, a, a honeycomb right there in the middle of the carcass of the lion. And he's... Hungry, so he just takes his hand, dips in there, and he's, he's eating. And all around that dead, unclean lion. This is one example. He's impulsive, number two. Throughout his life, he's controlled by his passions. God has caused him, called him to be a deliverer and to save Israel, and yet he can't even escape his own impulsivity. When he wants something, he feels like it should be his now. Number three, he's entitled. He goes through life with an entitlement mentality. Basically, he says, I deserve, I'm awesome, I'm going to take what I want. And number four, pride. When you read the chapters 13, 14, and 15 of Judges, the word I out of Samson's mouth is used over and over and over again. God has raised him up to deliver the people, but Samson's having a hard time with the hardest person he'll ever lead, himself. And that's true for you. The hardest person you'll ever have influence over is you. It's much more hard than the people you work with and the people who work for you and your spouse and your kids. Leading you is a full-time job. It is. And you're going to have to depend squarely on God for you to lead yourself well. Samson is called to deliver his people and remind them how important God is, but he's having a hard time remembering it himself. In Judges chapter 13, verse 23, Manoah and his wife again, but the wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things that now, or, or now told us this. Shown us all these things or now told us this. Here's why she said that. Her husband had said to her, hey, this, this messenger from God, I think we've looked into the face of God. We're going to die. And she's like, no, 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 listen. If God wanted us to die, he wouldn't have told us all this. He wouldn't have started all this thing. But we can trust this here. And so here's this unnamed woman reminding Manoah that if God is a part of this, it can be, he can be trusted. God's process can be trusted. You can afford to make an investment here you can afford to give your life to these things. So if he meant for us to be taken out, he wouldn't have started all this wonderful stuff. I just want to remind you, those you've been walking for Jesus, with Jesus for a while, that he didn't bring you this far to leave you. He didn't lift you up so that he could put you down. 
He started something in you, and he's faithful and just to complete what he has started in you. His salvation is complete. And so in verse 24 then, the words of the Lord come true to Samson's parents. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir while he was in, and then it names his little town in the province of Dan, between Zorah and Estaol. Now, we don't know where those places are, but if you had read the story in the original context, you'd know right where they are. They're on the very, very edge of the boundary of Israel. From Dan to Beersheba, that was the range of the country. So he's all the way up in the north. And his influence is going to spread, and it is. But he's going to go on a very interesting journey that we'll look at next week. But in your sermon notes, there's a blank. Samson is an imperfect judge, but he points to Jesus, the perfect judge. In almost every way, the parallels are uncanny. And when we read stories like this, the point is not to know more about the story. The point isn't even for you and I to imagine ourselves fully as Samson, although there are parallels in our lives. The point is, is that we're supposed to get a picture of the God who saves. And I want to remind you of a few lessons we've learned along our short journey so far. The God who saves is the God who initiates sometimes when we're not even interested in him. He's aligning things in our lives to get our attention and call us towards him. In my life, it was an aunt, my dad's um, sister, who first began to say to our family, perhaps you should go to church. I had nothing to do with it. It was just the environment I was in. But God was beginning to orchestrate by his own good purpose to his own good plan what he wanted to happen in my life. And I could take you to major spiritual event after major spiritual event. And if you pull back the curtain on all those events, you begin to see a God who is initiating, a God who is purposefully pursuing the people he loves. That's one thing we've learned so far. Another thing we've learned so far is that God is willing to use very imperfect people. He's very willing to use imperfect people. In fact, he uses imperfect people all the time. The only perfect person that ever fit into God's plan was his own son, Jesus. In fact, when you read about an imperfect savior like Samson, you're reminded of just how imperfect he is because you have somebody perfect to compare him to. Where Samson was impulsive, Throughout his life, he's controlled by his passions. Jesus was the perfect Savior who constantly said things like this. God, not my will, but your will be done. I'd like it to pass, but let's do it your way instead. And where Samson was given to compromise and going to break all the commitments he's made and go against what he knows to do, there's Jesus faithfully walking out the plan of his father. So much so that in a couple of occasions in his life, God says in a, in a way that people around Jesus can hear, this is my son and I'm pleased with him. No compromise there. And where Samson, the imperfect judge, feels entitled, I deserve this, I think I'm awesome. awesome. Paul reminds us that Jesus was in heaven with the Father. He lived a royal, regal life, but he took off his royal robes and chose to take on the form of a servant. Nothing entitled about that Savior. And where Samson was full of pride, the Bible talks about Jesus emptying himself. We're called to die to self and become a servant like our Savior. 
We read these stories of the Old Testament, and they all point us towards the one who is the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate savior. And our eyes are drawn away from just what's in front of us and the challenges we're going through, as real and pressing as they are, and we're called to get a bigger picture of the one who sends salvation. It's a call actually to worship him. Remember, Israel's sin was often they would turn away from the one true God and they would worship false gods. And so part of the delivering process was to turn their eyes back in worship to the one true God. And that's why for me, when I'm on vacation, honestly, one of the things I miss most about this place is standing with my church family and focusing my thoughts and my mind in worship on my unbelievable incredible, perfect Savior. And when we sing sing songs like, you define me, you declare the reality of my life, it begins to do a little messing with my reality in a good way. Because I can very clearly see what's in front of me and the challenges I know. But I can't sing songs like that and give myself to an environment where he is being lifted up For very long until my perspective begins to shift on the things of this earth. In fact, they begin to grow strangely dim. His face begins to shine. I miss that when I'm not here. I miss joining with my church family and opening the pages of the word and being reminded of what a savior we have. The one who breaks the bonds of fear. And calls us no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. The one who will use everything at his disposal, and everything is at his disposal, to grab your attention. And make sure that you know that he wants a relationship with you. He wants to be the most important thing in your life. In fact, he'll be the center of your life if you'll let it. We read the story of Samson, but I see a savior. His name is Jesus. And he gave his life, his perfect, sinless, unimpulsive, uncompromising, servant-hearted life for you and me. And it compels me, it pushes me, it urges me, not to know more about Samson, but to know more about the kind of God who would call a man like him. More about the kind of God who would call a person like me. More about the kind of God who would call each person in this room and say, I want a relationship with you. And I'll do great things in you that you can't do for yourself. And I'll do some incredible things through you. And you will see me bring deliverance to the world through you. This is not the story of one man. It's the story of every single human being ever born who is at times given to pride, entitlement, impulsivity, and compromise. That God doesn't give up. He's that kind of a perfect savior. No matter how strong the enemy is, how much they're like, you know, ants at a a country picnic, they're all over the place and irritating and frustrating and no matter how massive and numerous or powerful it is, God's deliverer is stronger. And his name is Jesus. Now next week, we'll look 
a little bit more deeply some of the details of Samson's life. But you can expect the same kind of revelation to you. That a perfect Savior has been given. His name is Jesus. Let me ask you, when's the last time you looked full into his wonderful face? And you got a picture of who he really is. And just how amazing and perfect this deliverer named Jesus in your life can be. And to help us take a few steps in that direction, why don't you grab out your Connect card and we'll do that together as a congregation. This is that card you filled out earlier in the welcome I've been talking about a perfect Savior and a perfect Deliverer, but it's possible you don't yet know Him as your Lord and Savior. So if that's you today, we'd invite you to take your pen and check next step A that says, today I want Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. Those words, Savior and Lord, are simply biblical terms that mean one who forgives your sin, covers all the wrong, which means you're going to have to agree with what the Bible says about you, that you're a sinner, you need a savior, you don't just need help, you don't just need encouragement, you need somebody to deliver you. And God has provided that in his son, Jesus. And the other word was Lord, that is he then becomes the leader of your life. He literally gets to set the agenda. When I was growing up, there was a popular bumper sticker that used to say, God is my co-pilot. It fell out of fashion. It's a good thing. It's horrible theology. Because if God is your co-pilot, he's in the wrong seat. God wants to grab hold and remind you that it was his car to begin with, and you're just privileged to be there. In fact, go ahead and get in the back seat. He'll, he'll take you where you need to go. And that's what the idea of Lord implies. The idea of Lord means that he gets to be in charge. If you want to commit yourself to a perfect Savior and a perfect Deliverer, check that box put the card in the offering bucket we'll pray about it here in just a minute and I'll give you a chance to say to God God would you cover my sin would you literally wash it away and I'll trust the work you've done in your death and resurrection to secure my relationship to my loving heavenly father or next step B today I'm choosing to be baptized we have a couple of baptisms scheduled for next week and in the summer that's a really big deal because people are all over the place but if you're going to be here next week and you have not yet been baptized, why don't you check the box and let a member of our team uh, reach out to you and talk to you about whether or not this is right for you. If you've given your life to Jesus but haven't gone public in baptism, you should check the box and let's have a conversation about that. The next step, C and D, are just an opportunity for you to acknowledge kind of where we've been on this journey today. See if these things are true for you. Next step, C says, I'm struggling to trust God because I don't see enough of the details. The truth is, is I need a greater revelation of him. If you're going through something, we'll pray that God will get you out of it. But I'm also going to pray that you see him more clearly in it. That's a big part of what he wants to do. The next step D says, hey, I've been negotiating with God. We call that religion. God, I'll clean up my act. You do this for me. I'll go to church a little bit. I need this from you. Or if you've been kind of having a negotiation relationship with God, I want to ask you in this step to kind of give that up and instead trust him. Just trust him. That is surrender to his way and engage a relationship where you obey him and follow him. And give up all this negotiating stuff, this, you know, seesaw, I do a little bit of good, God, you owe me a little bit. It's not based on anything you do. So even if you're a follower of Jesus and you find yourself in that kind of a engagement with God, why don't you lay that down and discover just what kind of a deliverer he really is, saving to the other, uttermost, to every degree of your life. And finally, next step E is about what's going on in our church life. 
I'm happy to announce we've hired a new student pastor. And next Sunday, he and his wife will be on our stage, and you'll have a chance to meet him. I'm just asking you in this step to pray and make it a new a priority to help greet him and his wife, Travis, and his wife, Andrea, here uh, next Sunday on July 16th. And then again, for parents of students, we have a meet and greet on July 30th. If you'll check this box, I'll send you those details so you can be at those events. Let's pray about these things right now. Father, I want to thank you that um, you're a perfect Savior. You're the perfect deliverer. And there's no situation we're in that is too far gone. There's no problem we're having that is too big for you. You're more powerful. You see the end from the beginning. And God, I want to pray that today, all across this room, that every single person, man, woman, child, gets a bigger picture of you. That as we've lifted our voices and our eyes in song to you earlier, as we've opened the pages of your word today to learn from the Holy Scriptures, I pray, God, that we would be reminded of just how amazing you are. That even in the next few moments, our hearts would be softened. We'd receive a revelation of who you are. And the things of this world would grow strangely dim as we look into your beautiful face. Lord, I pray for the men and women in this room who are making you their Lord and Savior. They're saying, God, I've, I've done enough on my own. I'm ready to trust you. I'm ready to give my life to a full and complete, total, perfect deliverer. So I trust you, Jesus, the work that you did on the cross in covering my sin and the power of your resurrection. I trust the work that you've done to secure my relationship to my heavenly Father. God, I pray that as a church, every time we gathered, every time we get together, when we sing, when we pray, when we serve, when we open your word, that we would see you more clearly. I pray this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.